Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Today we have Jacqueline London, a registered dietitian with a Bachelor of Arts degree from Northwestern University and a Master of Science degree in Clinical Nutrition from New York University. Jackie London handles all of Good Housekeeping's nutrition-related content, testing, and evaluation. Prior to joining Good Housekeeping, she was a clinical dietitian at Mount Sinai Hospital. In addition to reporting on nutrition news and trends, noteworthy products, myth-busting diet fads, weight loss tips, and eating advice, she oversees taste tests and reviews all food products interested in earning the Good Housekeeping seal or the Good Housekeeping Nutritionist Approved Emblem. She loves establishing healthful nutritional criteria and evaluating packaged food claims, such as low sodium and high fiber, to make sure that they're legitimate. Jackie is a regular expert guest on the Dr. Oz Show and the Today Show. She is also an adjunct professor at Toro College and author of the book Dressing on the Side and Other Diet Myths Debunked. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you for having me today. I'm so excited to be here. Sure. Thank you for being here. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about the book. So in your book, you break down 11 science-based ways to acquire a healthy lifestyle. Could you talk about these steps and also provide a basic overview of the book and your goals in writing it? Sure. So I found that in in my private practice, um, when I was working one-on-one with patients, with clients, when I would uh, see and hear from readers of Good Housekeeping, I would always find that the same nutrition-related questions would start without a question at all. It would actually start with a statement, which sounds a little bit like, I can't or I should, or a combination of the two, which is I know I should, but I just can't because. Um, and really what these are are the, the sort of cognitive behavioral therapy term, uh, cognitive distortions. They're, they're these ideas of how we see ourselves and how we think that certain factors, either things external from us or things within us, make it impossible for us to actually create and establish and hone in on effective behavior that really helps us uphold our own personal priorities when it comes to our own health. Um, and a lot of it, though, you know, some I, I've heard a lot of CBT therapy spoken about in, in health and nutrition and particularly in weight loss. And I have to say that so much of it now is different because of our different landscape. And this is what the book really addresses is that our landscape, sure, we have tons of, you know, perceived barriers to creating and establishing behavior change, but we also have an entire world of information democracy, which is fantastic in so many ways, but it can also be completely overwhelming and inertia-inducing um, to be able to have access to what we consider health or nutrition or diet information anytime, anywhere, 24 hours a day. Um, whether that's influencers, whether it is new research that's being published that seems to contradict something else that, that we've previously 
thought of as fact. Um, there, it, it's becoming even more overwhelming, more so than ever, to actually figure out what works and then take that information to apply to what works for us. Um, because it's really the book is really strategizing the ways that that we look at health and weight and weight loss or weight management, and look at how our own kind of structure, our framework, which is our lifestyles, have made have caused weight gain in the first place, or caused us to feel like we're not the ones in control of our health, and to 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 some degree be able to either drown out the information that's otherwise confused us, or to be able to use some of that information to make positive changes that really work for us. So some of the some of the steps that I talk about in the book, each of the chapters really leads with the kind of overarching myth that I'm looking to debunk, which is. Um, which are the ones, they're really the 11 most common things that I would hear in, in counseling practice. Some of them came straight from emails that were from readers of Good Housekeeping. Uh, the biggest one is probably, I have no willpower. That's probably the biggest myth of all. Um, there's other ones like grocery shopping gives me anxiety, which is sort of an expression that I would hear because there's so many confusing myths and, and stories that are being told to us anywhere we shop for food. Um, there is, I I can't lose weight because of my job. I can't lose weight because of my relationships, my family, my current, um, my current financial situation. There, there's a lot of perceptions about why we can't make changes to our health, and I go through each one, clarifying each of these kind of umbrella myths, and then the book goes into lots of different kind of um, various smaller myth debunking like apple cider vinegar, coconut oil, all of these sort of condiments that have become cure-alls. Uh, I, I, the book really sort of is a is a clarification of all of that, the things that we hear the most commonly in our vernacular today. That is so important. And thank you for, for providing this because it's really uh, such a wonderful resource for everyone. Um, thank you. Of all the of all the diets that have gained popularity that we hear about, read about, whether it's online or in books, such as the keto diet, the Mediterranean diet, uh, are there any that you feel are good for weight loss and improving your health? And is there an overall rule of thumb uh, or overall tips that are your most mm -hmm. important ones uh, for for both of these to accomplish both of these both weight loss and 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 maintaining good health any of the dietary patterns patterns there. So dietary patterns that are linked to healthier lifestyles overall are going to be the ones that are often criticized by by scientists, but that is because the role of someone of anyone who works in a clinical area of study um, or an empirical area of study in which they're using scientific method is going to be looking at it through through the lens of you know there was no intervention that happened in a study. On that's that's one opinion. However, dietary patterns linked to a healthier lifestyle are when we look at mass scale population studies, epidemiology, and we see the things that are long term linked to better health outcomes. Um, in nutrition science, it's very difficult to establish really good, solid, randomized control trials. So that's that's a type of um, 
of study in which the empirical method is, is used and it's one in which there's an intervention that happens to evaluate a specific outcome, let's say low carb or low fat. That's when we hear a lot of um, news surrounding topics like that. But when it comes to dietary patterns that are linked to health overall, it's really, really important because we want to be looking at not just population studies um, and evaluating people as a one-size-fits-all model, but we know that there are certain behaviors that just stand across the board always coming out on top, and that is eating more real, whole, wholesome foods, um, keeping, uh, making sure that vegetables and food are sort of the premier ingredient, the star of the show at Meals and Snacks, choosing 100% whole grains, eating regular mixed types of seafood, limiting um, saturated fat from processed meat and, and red meat, excess of those things, um, limiting added sugar from processed sources like sugary sodas, um, and on the whole, choosing conscious indulgences instead of some of the more processed, more sneaky ways that lots of these nutrients that get a bad rap uh, ease their way into our kind of environment. So that's why it's really, that's why I always try to focus on the what can I, what can I do more of um, and what are the takeaways from some of these big diets. So that, that's a big one. The other kind of big sort of food, food group or two groups is nuts, seeds, plant-based cooking oils, and pulses, pulse crops, so beans, chickpeas, lentils, and seeds, these are the, the most nutritious and most sustainable source of protein that we really have available to us. So I'll watch news headlines like Impossible Burger is, you know, going to be rolled out or the Beyond Meat Impossible Burger at Burger King. These are, that's, that's still taking a, a source of very high quality, high biological value protein, which is soybean, and turning it into a more processed food. We haven't really done anything better for ourselves. So anytime that you can think of foods consumed in their as close to nature or as close to their intended state as possible, that's where, that's the one real takeaway from population studies across the world that have real value and efficacy. Um, I would say, and, and this is really, when I say these things, I'm really speaking more to health and weight management. When it comes to weight loss, it's really about doing, taking what you know about what works, doing your research, and then thinking about how this might work for you. Because the thing that I say overall, and I find myself saying again and again, is that any diet that seems temporary to you for weight loss is it is temporary. It's temporary by design. You can't expect a temporary plan to apply to the rest of your life. So if you can't see yourself making those changes or choosing those foods over and over again over the course of the next 10, 20, 30, 50, hopefully 100 years, um, then then it's not really going to work for you because it, you will inevitably then wind up back on a cycle of, of kind of restriction and binging, which is what tends to happen in most of the common diets that we hear about today. So what would you say are uh, realistic, sustainable first steps for someone mm -hmm. who wants to create change? So step number one would be to use your schedule to inform your strategy for planning meals, snacks, and anything else in between. So a lot of times we hear about very common or popular plans and we think, um, oh, I can do that, but then we, we 
kind of trap ourselves in some of those distortions or like I thought I, I wanted to, but I had no willpower. I thought I could, but my job is just too hard for that. Um, so it's really about considering what your schedule is, where you're going to be when you have meals and snacks. And this is probably the most important thing that the book really teaches you overall is that where you are when you're eating is probably the number one key factor in what matters the most overall. And it's not just because of emotional, you know, perceptions of emotional eating or perceptions of, oh, I was so stressed, so I just ate that. It's usually a factor of what's available to us at a given place and time. And we find ourselves making lots of decisions based on that alone. Even if we had access to unlimited options, we're still thinking about, you know, do am I someone who, who gets a lot of my information by looking at scrolling through apps on my phone to think about where I'm going to order dinner tonight? So it's really about your environment that's going to play a really big role in, in terms of your food decisions. And because of your environment, that's really happening around your schedule. Where do you spend most of your time? Where are you when you're eating most often? And how can you make improvements to do the, the sort of number two thing, which is to make produce of any and all types the star of every meal and snack? And if it can't be the star, if that feels like it's way too much you know, pressure, um, it's really about thinking, how can I add an extra vegetable an extra serving of vegetables, an extra piece of fruit to my snacks? Can I make sure that I'm having a piece of fruit with every snack today? Can I make sure that I'm having vegetables with every single meal? Simply by taking this approach, you've automatically done two amazing things for your health. You're adding in tons of antioxidants and fiber, which is an under-consumed nutrient in our diets today, um, and is so, so critical for all for our holistic health, um, both for right now and for our immunity long-term. Um, and you're also doing something else, which is you're, di you're displacing the calories that would come from from elsewhere, from a less nutritious source of food. By having things that are high in fiber and high in water content, you're physically filling up. So you're not going to, that doesn't mean, you know, especially to start, I would not recommend completely, you know, consciously making an effortful choice to, to replace everything with vegetables. Of course, you know, no extreme is good. Um, but to anywhere that you can make this shift to add more vegetables, you're making a you're displacing the, the items that are less nutritious, you're adding more of the good stuff, and you're going to feel fuller longer um, because fiber has the effect of prolonging the process of digestion and absorption that we need to, to really use the energy we get from food. So it's a more stable kind of rise in blood sugar and, and energy levels. This is probably the, the number one place to start. And then the third thing and, and sort of the most important thing is to think about think about food and planning meals and snacks around this kind of framework of how close to the intended state is this meal or snack that I'm eating. So good examples of this are oranges instead of orange juice, uh, roasted potatoes instead of potato chips. It is thinking about, you know, did I, am I having, if I want to have a, um, a burger for dinner, am I having the burger for dinner or am I having the, uh, this processed version of, you know, a soy protein isolate that is filled with lots of other additives that may be high in sodium, high in saturated fat. Forget about those specific nutrients, but just, you know, it's just that very simple framework. Is this what I'm intending to eat right now? Why am I eating this food? So just to have a sense of both, of both taste and flavor as, and what you personally like to eat 
with the idea of adding in more vegetables and making meals just more whole, more wholesome. Um, that's, that's your easiest, most sort of stress-free place to start without doing anything like counting, um, you know, counting calories or looking to take some extreme approach. Because the, the only way that we can truly make changes to our health and to our weight permanently is to start slow and keep it as simple as possible and make seamless integrations into our lifestyle. And how much to what degree we choose to be rigorous with that is really up to us. And these are such wonderful tips and points that you're bringing up. But I do have a question for you. So I love fruits and I love and I actually love vegetables too. And I yeah. think when I prefer cooked vegetables because I think the sweetness comes out of them. But personally, yeah. I have an issue that I think other people have, and that is at times of the day, mm-hmm. I crave chocolate. Ah, great. And I, okay. How do we stop our addiction to sugar and chocolate, and what could we substitute? Or how do you just break that habit? Yeah. So I'm so glad you asked that because one of the myths (laughs) in dressing on this side is I'm addicted to sugar because this is a little bit um, one of these kind of phrases that's really taken form in our vernacular, which is I'm addicted to. Um, And especially with food, just because, you know, we see kind of a biological process that mimics something that we see in in addiction models does not make it the same thing with food and with um, with drugs. However, the idea that we're that we always want sweet that we sometimes want sweet things or that certain times of the day this we become susceptible to this. So there's a couple factors at play, but there's one thing that I really drill down on in the book, um, which is which talks about why these feelings may come up, why it may feel like it's sort of out of your control or like you really want to have a piece of chocolate or, um, or why we sometimes feel, and I'll often get the, this in, in practice, I've often heard the phrase, oh, but I just have another stomach for dessert, right? So and this is what I call full not satisfied syndrome, <laughs> FNSS. Uh, in the book. So full not satisfied syndrome happens for a number of factors, but one of the there's a couple that are physiological. So that is, uh, are you hydrated? And how much have you, how many unsweetened beverages or how much liquid have you physically had today? So often I'll see people who are subclinically dehydrated, um, meaning that there's no, there's not really a biochemical change. There's nothing that you would, that would be an identifiable nutrition focused physical assessment factor that's at play. It's just that it's, it's just not getting enough water throughout the day can make you feel like you have a bottomless pit of a stomach. So it's really being conscious that you're having unsweetened beverages. Um, at least I, I usually say to people who are, who are saying, oh, I just don't like water. Or I don't really find myself drinking that much throughout the day. It's to start the day with 16 ounces. So that's one easy, simple way um, to kind of offset some of that physiology that gets in the way. The other, the other factor, too, is that, and this plays really more directly into full not satisfied syndrome, is um, did you have breakfast today? Was it big enough? And, and if not, you know, how can you, have you had regular meals and snacks that have been a combination of protein, healthy fat, and fiber. And the reason why I say this is because across the literature, we find that these nutrients are really what promote satiety for longer periods. 
Um, and it's, it's often, you know, something that has really been driven into a lot of us as a result of what, what, what many would call um, diet culture or traditional diet culture is one in which we restrict and we cut back and we say that we have to eliminate or low or um, I'm not eating dessert or I can't have, I shouldn't have, all of those kind of language terms that make us think that we have to restrict, restrict, restrict in order to achieve something greater later on, um, this pattern of restriction is really what causes us to kind of limit ourselves at mealtimes or snack times and often causes us to skip meals entirely or skip a component of a meal entirely. So having meals that are a satisfying, meals and snacks that are a satisfying combo of uh, of fiber as, as well as protein and fat are going to help us feel more satisfied, not just full throughout the day. So I always tell, tell uh, clients and patients eating every three to four hours is, is the most important kind of schedule-related change or shift that I would want someone to make at the outset. Um, so eating regularly, staying hydrated, and then, of course, there's sleep. And, and exhaustion, um, which can play a role in how much we feel like we're susceptible to a takedown via our own thoughts, right? Or that we're susceptible to mm-hmm. just simply desiring more sweet uh, sweet foods. A lot of that has to do with, um, with the way that sleep impacts appetite and appetite regulation. And sometimes we really can't do anything about it unless you can just take a nap at work, so, um, which is not really possible for most of us. So that's when I say it's time to... It's time to bring in the big gun. So the USDA and Department of Health recommends 300 to 400 milligrams of caffeine per day for healthy people, for people in general, good state of health. Um, 300 to 400 milligrams translate to one full, you know, filled to the brim Starbucks venti coffee. So that's where, that's in what, however you want to think about that, if you want to break that up into smaller amounts, if you feel like you're particularly sensitive in the afternoon. Um, so it all comes back to the kind of drink, snack, sleep sort of mentality of thinking about, wait, wait a sec, before I have this piece of sweet anything, did I have a satisfying, have I skipped any meals today, or did I not have enough satisfying combinations of foods at those meals? Um, did I did I drink appropriately? Have I hydrated? And did I sleep last night? And using those kind of questions to inform how you'll proceed next and what you might want to do next, um, that's all flushed out for you in dressing on the side. So I will I will leave that as a cliffhanger, that last piece. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about exercise and how exercise comes into play with a healthy diet sure. and healthy so, lifestyle? Yeah, so I so I get this question a lot, and it's a really interesting one because there's different types of exercise that throughout the literature really show different benefits um, for appetite, different benefits for health, different benefits for weight management. There's not much by way of science that supports physical activity for weight loss directly. That being said, I say directly because what what I talk about quite a bit in dressing on this is um, this this uh, psychology theory called by uh, Yerkes Dodson theory, and really what it refers to is the the question of motivation. Where does motivation to do something come from? And really what the theory kind of goes into depth with is showing that we kind of need some form of cognitive 
stimulus in order to get us to start doing something. So whether that means that you have a brand new lunchbox and now you're super psyched to take your lunch to, to work with you, or you have a new exercise class that you're like, oh my God, I found something I actually like doing. This is so fun. <laughs> um, anything that makes you want to come back or keep doing it, that is the best type of physical activity for you because ultimately physical activity can play varying degrees of of how of impact in whether or not you're able to lose weight, but where we know, and it, and it really turns out to be not very much, which is sort of unfortunate, particularly cardio exercise. Sometimes it just, it's not doing quite as much as we want it to do. But when you think about how the overall lifestyle of someone who is able to be physically active regularly can be, can be improved and can make better more healthful choices as part of a cascade effect of of just getting started on something simply because you like doing it. You know, I wouldn't want someone to not start moving because they thought it wasn't going to help them lose weight. There's plenty of benefits that then turn into being habits that are more helpful for weight and weight management over time. So anytime that you can find ways to move more in your current lifestyle, do that in ways that actually are fun, enjoyable, or, or simply just a, a rethought or reframed um, mode of transportation for you, uh, that's where I would really, that's where I would say you will find yourself making better choices overall and you will find yourself making movement a more naturally integrated part of your current lifestyle, which again is, you know, back to the old kind of refrain. If it works for you in ways that can help improve and sustain your current way of life, that's that's really the sweet spot that that will inevitably work for you long term. Thank you so much. So the book is called Dressing on the Side and Other Diet Myths Debunked, Love and Science-Based Ways to Eat More, Stress Less, and Feel Great About Your Body. We'll have links to some of the many sites where it's available, Amazon, Barnes Noble, most places where books are sold. And Jackie, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. This was great. And thank you for everyone who took the time to listen. I hope this podcast helped touch your life. Thank you. Have a great day.